You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn, first of all, to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his sickness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Thus far, the Old Testament reading. Let's turn now to Luke 1, verses 76 to 79. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And then chapter 3, the verses 1 to 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. The last number of Sundays, Advent Sundays, we have looked at 
the stump Messiah, the rock Messiah. And today in Isaiah 40, which is our text, the verses 1 to 11, we turn to the good news Messiah. Isaiah 40, 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field, The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. And his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him. And his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's not at all unusual to hear people asking during these festive days, what do you want For Christmas. In other words, what sort or what kind of a present do you want me to buy for you? Or do you want, perhaps, and that's a reference, Santa Claus, to buy for you? Or to give you? And to which, of course, there then follows a multitude of answers. Almost everyone has a wish list. Especially children and grandchildren have their wish lists. Last year, or maybe it was the year before, one of my grandsons lost two of his front teeth just before Christmas. And in response, one couldn't quite get that jingle out of one's head, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. So what do you want? A ski pass, an iPad, a new purse, jewelry, new teeth, a Geronimo Stilton book. What do you want? I can only guess. But you know, in the case of the prophet Isaiah, I can do more than guess. 
For I know exactly what it is that the prophet Isaiah wants for Christmas. I know it because I can read about it in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah wants, believe it or not, preaching. Yes, preaching. Good news preaching. He wants preaching about the coming Messiah. And why does he want this, and in what way does he want this to come across? I preach to you on the following theme, the good news, Messiah. We're going to first look at forgiveness announced. Secondly, glory predicted. Thirdly, preaching ordered. And fourthly, good news identified. So the good news, Messiah, forgiveness announced, glory predicted, preaching ordered, and good news identified. Well, beloved, it's not too hard to discern why it is that the prophet Isaiah wants to hear good news preaching. All you have to do is go back and read chapter 39, as well as a lot of the other previous chapters, and there you will find, for example, in 39 that The prophet tells King Hezekiah that all of his descendants are one day soon going to be carted off to Babylon. In other words, expulsion and exile is coming. Judah is doomed. Disaster is on the horizon. And you know as well as I that in due time it happens. It happens exactly as the word of the Lord proclaims it. The land is invaded. Babylon comes. Jerusalem falls. Many are killed. And those who remain, a lot of them are carried off to Babylon. And there they live, dejected and despondent, without hope. In other words... If you think of the lot of the exiles in Babylon, it's a pretty bleak and dark picture. They need help. They need some kind of encouragement. They they need something to lift them up. And, you know, it's this something that they need that comes along now in Isaiah chapter 40. And indeed, beginning with chapter 40 and all the way to the end to chapter 66, the entire tone of this Bible book changes dramatically. And instead of condemnation and judgment, confrontation and rebuke, Isaiah goes on to prophesy about help and hope and comfort and consolation and gladness and glory. And as a matter of fact, look at how chapter 40 begins. It opens with a startling new word in this prophecy, and the word is comfort. And not just a little bit of comfort either. The repetition of that particular word at the beginning of this chapter means loads of comfort. Buckets full. Isaiah is supposed to dispense it. But then, of course, the comfort comes not in the form of a bottle filled with strong drink, as so many people tend to think, especially at this time of year. The comfort comes, believe it or not, in the form of preaching. Speak, 
tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her. Notice the words speak, proclaim, and and further on as you go through our text, you can underline the other verbal words, voice, three times the word voice is used, calling, mouth, good tidings, say, shout. You see, the, the comfort of Isaiah comes in the form of a message, a proclamation, a sermon. But what content does that message have? What's it all about? Well, look at our text. First of all, you can see very clearly it's about forgiveness. Verse 2 reveals that Isaiah is to tell the exiles about three things. The first for openers is this. It's over. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. In other words, the exile has run its course. Release is near. Freedom is approaching. And secondly, not only is it over, but atonement has been made. Proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. The language is the language of sacrifice. Sin has been committed, sacrifice has been offered, reconciliation has arrived. Your sins have been paid for. And thirdly, grace is coming. Proclaim to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The language is somewhat difficult and obtuse. It means that not only has her sin been paid for, but that now she is about to receive double goodness, double grace. And so you see, if the people in exile or elsewhere are still wondering about their relationship with God, they need wonder no longer. The prophet makes clear that as far as God is concerned, all her sins have been covered, all her offenses have been paid for, all of her guilt has been removed. Judgment is over. Forgiveness fills the air. And you know, is that ever a a wonderful feeling? I think some of you know all about it. You, you sometimes, as a matter of fact, we all sometimes stumble. And I think we all at times do really, really dumb things. Things that cause a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, whether it's to our spouses, our children, our friends, or family. You're in the doghouse. But then to hear the words, I forgive you. That's music. How wonderful. How liberating. Well, here God, through the prophet Isaiah, is telling the remnant of Israel that 
Their crimes are over, finished, forgotten, forgiven. It's really glorious. Because nothing beats being right with the Almighty. But then, beloved, if the verses 1 and 2 are all about forgiveness, the message coming out of the verses 3 to 5 is all about glory. Notice first how in the verses 3 and 4 the way is prepared for glory. And I might add that here, as well as elsewhere in in our particular text, there is a problem with quotation marks. In the original Hebrew, there are no quotation marks, so these have been added, but they have not always been added in exactly the right places. You can read it as, quote, a voice in the desert is calling, quote, prepare the way for the Lord. You see, here you have an advanced man, a man who is making everything ready for the coming of a royal procession. And Isaiah portrays him as coming out of the desert. And you know, later on in Luke 3, you can see, and we've read that, how those particular words are applied to John the Baptist. He is in some ways the ultimate desert advance man. He's the one who makes everything ready for the coming of the Christ. But yet this advance man does more than announce the coming of glory. He also, notice that, he spells out the certainty of this glory. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain shall be and hill made low. The rough places made a plain Quite simply, nothing. Nothing's going to prevent the coming of glory. Not deep valleys, not high hills, not steep mountains, not desert places. Nothing. All the obstacles, all the barriers will be cleared away, swept aside. And in their place there will come a highway. And why a highway or a freeway? So that the glory of God can come barreling down the freeway. And the glory of the Lord, Isaiah says, will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, what does that mean? What does that refer to? Well, the best answer, beloved, is the one that we receive in John chapter 1. There in John 1 verse 14, John writes, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And the result of that dwelling, well, John writes further on, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only or the only begotten who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, when Isaiah declares the glory of the Lord will be revealed, he's referring to the coming of the Messiah. 
For in the Messiah, we see God's glory. We see it in all of its perfection, in all of its splendor, in all of its fullness. You know, if you're a Bible student, then you know that the background here in John, as well as in Isaiah and in Luke, the background is Exodus 40 and the construction of the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God wanted to live among the people whom he had just liberated out of Egypt. And so he has them build this very elaborate and expensive tent. And once finished, he made sure that this tent went wherever his people went. When the people started up in the morning, the tent went with them. When the people rested at night and started pitching their tent, then the great tent was pitched as well, right in the center of the people, right in the heart of them. The three tribes to the north, three tribes camped to the south, three to the west, three to the east. They're all around him. But that's not all, for this tent was not just an empty shell. Now in Exodus 40, we are told that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. A special cloud came and settled over and on this tent, and the cloud represents the presence of the Lord. It symbolizes the fact that the Lord of glory is now living among his people. And now, beloved, here in Exodus, or in Isaiah 40, the prophet predicts that a day is coming when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. You may also recall that when the children of Israel go into exile, the prophets speak about the glory lifting up out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, moving out of the city and out of the land. But now Isaiah says not only is forgiveness coming, but the glory of the Lord is coming back. No longer, and indeed, does he say, a cloud will hide him. No longer will he be invisible to human eyes. No, the glory of the Lord will become visible. Yes, and that's what happens when Jesus is born. For then the glory becomes flesh, then the glory can be seen. John exclaims in astonishment and delight, we have seen his glory. Can you imagine that? We've seen it. And later on, the Apostle Paul will write that that in him all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So in Jesus Christ, we see the glory of the Lord. In Jesus Christ, God is really and truly living among us. In Jesus Christ, the King of glory has come in. 
And beloved, realize this and realize it well. And let nothing lead you to deny this. You know, there are people who stumble all over the manger. And there are also people who stumble all over the fact that Jesus is the son of a carpenter. And then there are even more people who stumble over the cross and who see it as nothing more than a huge offense and a colossal stumbling block. But beloved, let none of that fool you. Jesus is the glory. John and so many more looked at Jesus and insisted, we have seen the glory. But then how do we know he is the glory? How do we really know? Well, the answer lies in the third part of our text, in the verses 6 to 8. It lies in the word. Now, in the verses 6 to 8, we again have quotation problems. If you turn to our text, do you see that cry, that word cry at the end of the first part of verse 6? What shall I cry? Well, scratch out those quotation marks. And do you see the quotation mark in front of all, in all men are like grass? Well, scratch that one out as well. And then go to the verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall. Afterward, fall, put in a quotation mark. And then at the beginning of the next word, but, put in another quotation mark. So what do you get? First, you get a voice, which is the voice of Isaiah saying, cry out. Second, you get a response, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, and the flowers fall. And then you get another voice. But the word of our God stands forever. So what's the point of the reconstruction? It's to make very clear that here we have a contrast, a huge, bold, startling contrast. Isaiah is told to cry out, to preach. But he wonders what good will that do? What will his preaching accomplish? How will it change anything? Mere words and more words, idle words, empty words, useless words. Why bother? But yet you'll notice the problem is not just with words, it's also with people. Why bother to tell people anything? People are like grass, transient. People are like flowers, here today, gone tomorrow. When it comes to people, nothing sticks, nothing lasts, nothing stays. So what's the use of telling them anything? 
You know, on one level, being a preacher of the gospel is the most useless calling in all the world. You get to use words that go nowhere. Now, in a sense, beloved, that's true when it comes to mere human words. But, you know, when it comes to the word of God, it's not true. For the voice retorts, but the word of our God stands forever. Human words are bunk but not God's Word. And not words that echo God's Word either. Human words are limp and lifeless. But the Word of God is strong and powerful and eternal. Why do we esteem the Bible so highly? Why do we read it, meditate on it, discuss it, sometimes study the stuffings out of it? Because it's not our word. It's not a a human word. It's a God word. It's a word that survived and prevailed throughout the ages. It's the word that will always, always be there. It'll always stand. It will always prevail. And why is that? Well, look at the fourth part of our text, the verses 9 to 11. The reason why this word stands forever is because it speaks about and is filled with the good news. The good news Messiah will reign and rule, gather and carry his sheep forever. Well, look in verse 9, Isaiah is told to go up to a high mountain, and that simply means that he's got to find a really, really suitable pulpit or podium from which to speak. And then he's told, notice he's told to shout. Lift up your voice. None of this whispering, this mumbling, this conversing, this lecturing. No, he's to use all of his lungs and all of his vocal cords. He needs to shout, to proclaim, to broadcast. He needs to make so much noise that all the towns of Judah hear it. And what should they be hearing? And what is this shouting to be all about? First, it's about the coming of the Lord. Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes. The Lord is coming. He's really coming. And that's important. You know, when you're living in exile... You often think no one's coming, nothing's happening, no one's listening, 
And no one's bothering anymore. When you're living in exile and you can find countless stories about that, you get depressed. Nobody hears us. Nobody answers us. Nobody cares about us. All we have is misery. But notice that's not true. For Isaiah says the Lord is is coming. And he's to shout the news. And notice how he's coming. He's coming as, as the sovereign Lord. He's, he's coming, Isaiah says, with an outstretched arm. Not an outstretched hand, but an outstretched arm. He's coming loaded down with the spoils of victory. And he's coming with a prize or recompense, and that refers to the fact that he's coming with his people. But not only is he coming with power, he's also coming with tenderness. Notice the sudden shift in the text. All of a sudden, Isaiah says, he he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. How reassuring. How warm and beautiful. You know, this is shepherd language. It's one thing to know that God can do great and mighty things. But sometimes it's another thing for us to realize that he truly understands and knows and sees and loves and and cares and, and reaches out and embraces and guides and supports our lives every day. You see, Isaiah is saying, this is the mighty Lord and this is the tender Lord. And that's true of God the Father. And it's also true of God the Son. You notice when Jesus is born, there is no immediate display of divine power. The heavens may be doing some singing, but the earth is mute. There are angels, and then there are also lowly shepherds and some foreign wise guys. But pomp and circumstance are sadly lacking. But did you ever notice, as he grows and as he assumes his messianic office, you begin to see power radiating out of him? Awesome power, power in defeating the devil, power in healing all kinds of illnesses, power in expelling the demons, power in stilling the seas, power in conquering the grave. But then do you also notice that not only do you see this mighty display of power, you also get this mighty description of the wonderful care. Of the good shepherd. The sick he heals. The blind he makes to see. The lame he causes to walk. The possessed he sets free. The shriveled he makes whole. The guilty he frees. And the dead he raises. 
So you see, beloved, what you have here is this wonderful combination of might and mercy, of majesty and meekness, of supremacy and service, of authority and humility. Beloved, as the celebration of the birth of our Savior approaches, we cannot help but stand amazed. What a Savior we have. And what a hope he brings. Truly, it may be dark out there in the world. But here in the church and among the people of God, it is bright and it is beautiful. And together we may celebrate. For we are the recipients of the greatest message in the world. We have a Savior. And he's Christ, the Lord. We have a Savior and he is the good news Messiah. So embrace him. And serve him. And love him. And live out of him. And realize that it's not so ridiculous after all to say, All I want for Christmas is preaching. The preaching of the good news. Messiah. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.